All right, welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. Uh, thanks so much for joining us again. Uh, interesting show today. Some great commentary, some great discussion. Uh, we're always interested in your reaction as well. But I, I want to I go on on a couple things because there's a lot going on. Uh, we talked to David French, as you'll hear coming up, about the ban and the Supreme Court's action. And I just, I just want to say there are some smart people uh, who believe this was not a big win for Trump. I'm not one of them. I'm either not smart or, or uh, I disagree, <laughs> or maybe both. But um, this was a huge win for, for Donald Trump. Because uh, remember, quite apart from the legalities here, and uh, as you'll hear David French describe, you know where you stand often depends on where you sit. Supreme Court takes its responsibilities to the Constitution perhaps uh, more seriously. It should take it more seriously than federal court judges, though they should all take it seriously. They are so pledged and so swear. But uh, does seem to sink in, and the court, the Supreme Court, even with the liberals, um, thus this decision. But I want to talk not about the legal aspect, but about, if you will, all the all the emotion and all the commentary and all the opinions surrounding um, the ban when it was announced. Uh, if you remember when Donald Trump announced this, well, of course, when he said it during the campaign, people went absolutely nuts because he said, "We have a problem. We got to, you know, a temporary stop here." on uh, people coming in and until we figure this thing out. Uh, and so they put this 90-day ban in. It had some problems with it, but basically um, they thought it made sense. I thought it made, made sense, although it isn't exactly to the core question, which is not what country do you come from, but what your beliefs are. Do you believe in Sharia supremacy or do you believe in constitutional supremacy? Nevertheless, when, when, when Trump announced it, People acted like, what kind of man is this? What kind of person could countenance such a thing, such a ban? Uh, Chuck Schumer uh, tried to hold back tears, remember? I mean, he didn't do very well. He was crying, um, not as much as he did to me when I, he was my student. And I didn't give him the A plus or A, which would have made him summa cum laude at Harvard rather than just magna. Be grateful for magna, I said. Magna cum laude from Harvard's pretty good. I digress. Um, anyway, Schumer was was crying, saying this executive order was mean spirited, not American, and uh, uh, this was reported. The Democrat senator from New York said through tears, "It was implemented in a way that created chaos and confusion across the country." The New York Times editorial board said Donald Trump's ban is cowardly and dangerous. Rob Reiner, well known commentator, comedian, along with liar, racist, misogynist, fool, infantile, sick, narcissist. With the Muslim ban, we can now add heartless and evil to Trump's repertoire. I guess heartless and evil is the Supreme Court as well. And even Harvard law professor Lawrence Tribe uh, told Greta Van Susteren that Trump's executive order is unconstitutional from the top down. Not so, Mr. Tribe, says your former colleague at Harvard Law School, uh, Mr. Breyer, uh, and um, eight other justices, unanimous. This is clearly within the powers of the president. You may like the policy, you may not like the policy, but it's within the powers of the president. And it's so clearly constitutional that nine of them signed on to this. I mean, I, I find this quite uh, quite extraordinary, quite a win. It's a big deal. Let's remember this. Let's keep bringing it up and, and embarrass liberals with this, who said this was the clearest mark that this guy was uh, some kind of uh, satanic figure, some kind of awful, evil malevolent uh, figure. Am I right, Chris uh, Beach, or not? No, I, I think you are right. And doesn't this speak to just how powerful the Supreme Court is, really is? I mean, I don't, I think, Yeah. I, I mean, obviously when President Trump did it, they had no problem attacking him, calling him all sorts of names. But now that the Supreme Court has spoken, you haven't heard much. I don't think we've heard anything from uh, Mr. Tribe, or I don't think Schumer said much about it yet. Uh, but I think that just tells you the power, right? It does tell you. You know what they say in baseball? Yeah, there's double a, single A, double A, and triple A, but there's nothing like the majors. Yeah. And this is the, this is the majors. Uh, you know, can Supreme Court case, uh, decisions be challenged? Yeah, Lincoln did, others did, but there is a certain finality to them. Remember uh, in the gay marriage case uh, when uh, they all came down the steps and a lot of air went out of the uh, opposition. I mean, uh, people are still worried about it, and we have the case of the, with the cake, the wedding cake for the gay couple, which is uh, the court's going to hear. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, uh, something happened that day that closed that issue off, at least for now. 
at least for a while. And um, I think that's what happened. Uh, that's what happened here. But the, the point I want to make is people want to use certain kinds of actions on the, on the part of Trump, a kind of new uh, jurisprudence when it applies to Trump, that if they think it's wrong, if they think it's uh, incorrect, then it's inhumane and unthinkable that one would do it. Well, it's not only thinkable, it's constitutional. And um, by the way, the Supreme Court did not talk about his uh, extra um, order commentary. Um, right, his tweets. And, and his tweets, and that's that's interesting too. Uh, Supreme Court doesn't doesn't do tweets. Um, okay, it would be interesting if all the Supreme Court justices started tweeting, wouldn't it? Uh, every, every, I was supposing everyone starts tweeting, you know. Um, the president's <laughs> anyway. doing it, you know. Why yeah. don't we do well, it? Why not? Why not? Anyway, that's on that. Please, though, listen to David French. This is a great discussion. And um, this is a moment worth pausing over while we all fret about health care. Let's talk about health care. I said on uh, Fox the other day, I was on Outnumbered, that I, you know, I don't know on this one. Um, let me let me just make a couple of observations. I know that Republicans promised to repeal and replace. I know, I know it was at uh, you know the heart of many elections and, and and campaigns. I still don't think that, except for maybe twenty five, thirty percent, thirty five percent of the voting for Trump uh, block, that it was the number one issue. Um, you could check the polls on that, Chris, while I'm talking, but I know it was important to a lot of people, but I don't think it was as important as immigration, um, aspects of the ban, the economy, jobs. Um, maybe you could check that out and interrupt me when you, when you, when you get sure. there. I just don't think it was there. Second, it's easy to say in general you're opposed to it, but now we find it's much harder to say what you're opposed to specifically. Are you opposed to all this Medicaid going out? Are you opposed to pre-existing conditions? Uh, are you opposed to um, subsidies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? These things become harder, more difficult. What am I saying here? That the Republicans shouldn't have taken it up? No, they, they should have taken it up. They're a big party. They have a very conservative people at one side. They have some very moderate people on the other side, and they only have 52, so it's hard to get to yes. It's hard to get to agreement. But what I'm saying is, it's, I'm not sure it's the worst thing, except for people who are being beat the heck up by Obamacare, and I take that very seriously. If the Republicans do not do not uh, find a solution, I'm not sure they will. Uh, I put it at uh, what did I say, fifty-one forty-nine. I can't remember what I said. TV fifty-one forty-nine. They will do it or won't do it. I can't remember what I said. It's very close anyway, um, because. Um, I remember it was the president himself, wasn't it, Chris, who said that um, at one point he said, maybe we should just let this thing go through and then people will know what the Democrats have wrought. Um, That's right. He did say that. And that would be cruel in the sense that you know that people are taking a beating and you can't get your act together enough to take the club away. So people continue to get their beating, but we can stop the beating when it gets to the point where everybody says, oh, gosh, this doesn't work. By the way... I think we're a long way from saying the American people as 60% of them saying, uh, okay, stop the beating. It, it's, it's not like it was five or six years ago. There are now, I think, majorities in favor of Obamacare. Am I right about that? I think you're right about that as well. I think it's uh, about probably 52, 53, 48. It's very close, but they okay. are in favor. Okay. Okay. And uh, did you find anything on the, on the base and the priority of it? Yeah. So in exit polls, um, the economy was the top issue for voters. Right. Sure. Um, I don't have, I'm trying to find the exact breakdown, uh, okay. but that was All right, clearly. Uh, by and yeah. large the number one issue. And I think immigration motivated more people more passionately than, than uh, health care. Now, people who are getting these premiums increased radically and dramatically, they were very strongly motivated. No question about it. You become a single issue candidate when your premium goes from $600 a year to $6,000 a year. But I'm not sure it's the worst thing if Republicans don't come to agreement here. And I don't, I don't know how they do come to agreement once you talk about the specifics. Consider the following contrast. Here's Obamacare. Here's the uh, Republicans' effort to put something else in its place. First of all, it's large and complicated, and I will not pretend to this audience, for whom I have the greatest respect and regard, that I understand it. I can't fathom this. It's so complex. It's so complicated. 
But uh, it's easy to say in general where you stand on it. I'm opposed to it. Um, but when you get into specifics, um, what are you opposed to and what are you in favor of? For example, well, I'm opposed to government, uh, you know, centered uh, health care. Well, are you really? Are you opposed to Medicare? I'm on Medicare. Um, there are, what, 55 million people on Medicare. There are 70 million people on Medicaid. Now, we've discussed in the past, um, you know, that Medicaid's a very bad system. Uh, a study done in Oregon suggested people who are without Medicaid were healthier than people with Medicaid. Nevertheless, people have become, come to rely on it. And that's the last point I'd make here. Uh, hats off to Ted Cruz, uh, inside joke, the smartest conservative student that uh, Alan Dershowitz ever taught. Should I explain that inside joke? I'll well, because you were also one of his students. I'll, right? I'll, I'll do it in a minute. <laughs> Ted Cruz, you remember ready, reading Dr. Seuss and saying over and over again, we have to stop this because if we don't stop it, we'll never be able to pull it back. You remember him saying that or mm-hmm. things like that? And, um, you know, some of us criticized Cruz for being obstructionist in some ways, but um, he was right. He was right. It's very hard to pull this back, particularly when it becomes an entitlement. And when people are given something and you're now in a position of taking it away, they're not going to take it away. And so if Republicans are, are are ranting against this government takeover of healthcare, but don't want to pull back the government's involvement except for one or two pieces of it, it doesn't look like a very good faith exercise. That's my point. What do you want to say, Chris? Well, were you going to explain the rest of your cruise joke? First? Oh, yeah. Well, I, well I, I was watching Alan Dershowitz on Fox and Friends. I was about to come on myself, and they were talking about cruise, and he said – he was my student, and he was just about the brightest conservative student I ever had. And then I came on, but he was still on the set. And I said, I just want to ask Alan, Alan Dershowitz, you know, who was the brightest conservative student you ever had? Because when you talk to me, you tell me it was it was I. And when you're <laughs> talking to other people, you tell them it was Cruz. Now, two points. One, this isn't a huge field, first of all, conservative students at Harvard Law School there weren't a whole ton of us. <laughs> yeah. And, and he said, likes, likes to say it, he said on TV, and Bennett came in, he had his right arm up, and he kept it up in the air the whole three years he was there asking questions. Well, this was the late 60s, early 70s. I used to say I was the only student in the criminal law class who believed anybody should go to jail. Yeah. You know, there were people who thought nobody should ever go to jail for whatever offense they committed. Anyway, just to say that some people should go to jail made you a conservative. But I, I don't care. I'll be very happy to be second to Cruz because I'll say it in a quiet voice. Cruz is smarter than I am. Okay. We did an IQ test. I'll bet you he's, I don't know. But who knows more about college football? I do. <laughs> I do. I was just charting it. I was just charting Saturday by Saturday. We got some great games coming up. That reminds me of our guest list. You know what I'm thinking, right? Oh, I do know what you're thinking. You do know what I'm thinking. Okay, so that's where I am. Let's see what happens. Make a prediction. Are they going to get something out of the Senate, uh, the Republicans, or not? Are they going to get something th- that they can agree to, first of all? I think, ultimately, they will get something. Okay. And it's likely to be pretty watered down, I will say that. Yeah. Is that better than nothing? I think so. I think it's better than nothing. I'm not sure it is. I'm not sure it is. Well, we'll have to see what it is. But but I will say with with a caveat, (laughs) I I do think that it's not the end of the world if they don't get something for a year, two years, maybe three years, maybe longer. I don't think it's the end of the world. The American people, one of the things they're most disgusted with Obamacare was the fact that it was rushed through and no one read it. And so for Republicans to do the same thing, yeah. I think, would put them in a similar position, and people are not going to be happy with that. So I think people will give them some some time, uh, some breathing room. Um, so I don't think they have to do something immediately. I think there's more harm in owning a program, if they pass something, which is mean-spirited, appears to be mean-spirited, takes away things that people have, and gives the opportunity for 20 million vignettes of somebody, you know, sobbing because they lost their health care uh, or their Medicaid uh, than to um, have a situation where the Democrats continue to own it and those 20 million vignettes are of people who are now priced out of the market um, <clears throat> and for a variety of other reasons cannot, uh, cannot afford health care. That's just my view. Um, no good options here. This is what we call in philosophy a case of insufficient options. There aren't good ones here. There really aren't good ones that I can see that are realistic that can happen. But we'll see. 
Uh, third thing I want to talk to you about is uh, fake news or very fake news, as the president might say. I used to work for CNN. I wrote long memos uh, to them about their bias, uh, confirmation bias, that they had a certain view of the world and that um, they uh, you know, reported the news so as to confirm that bias, so as to back up that bias. Start with an ideology and assemble the facts to get it lined up uh, in the way of your inclination. And um, I think that problem has gotten worse and worse and worse. They're the anti-Trump network. There is no question about it. Um, they would say in response, I think some of them, that uh, Fox News, where I work, is the pro is the state uh, official state network of the Trump administration. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's fair. I don't think the evidence bears that out. So uh, let's go to CNN and and look closely. I'm, I'm glad they fired these three people. One of them Pulitzer Prize winner. But they reported a, a, f- a fake news. Anthony Scaramucci, who's a friend of the president's and part of the kitchen cabinet, and I know him, was stopped in the street by some Russian who said hello. And uh, CNN turned this into a story about a major conspiracy to profit the Trump administration and Scaramucci and a deal. And they had to retract the whole thing. This was extraordinary. This is, you talk, talk about confirmation bias. This is confirmation bias on steroids. They want to find something on the Russian thing, and they're going to find, assemble facts, even make up facts. And it's, uh, it's ridiculous. And um, the relations between uh, the, the, the Trump White House and the press get worse and worse. And um, the reporting by, by a lot of the major media, they're just anti-Trump. And I have said this before to you folks. I think this will go on. I think this will continue. I don't see any relenting uh, on the part of the media, and I don't see much relenting on the part of the president. Um, but boy, if you get these, um, these stories, which are not factually true, look at the whole Russia thing again. Let's look at this at 30,000 feet. This thing's been going on for a year. They don't have anything. And they continue to emphasize this rather than the other things. Um, how many people know, by the way, that the House passed legislation that repealed Dodd-Frank? You know, that's a big deal. Did you know that, Chris? I, I did. Or that they rolled back the, some of these awful EPA rules. Yeah, no, these are these are big things and uh, not being reported. Go ahead, Chris. You know, and I was going to say to just uh, back up your points. I don't know if you caught some of these, you know, CNN tapes that they've released with these conversations with his producer, um, who was talking about Russia, and he said, uh, "This is the James yeah. O'Keefe video," and he said that they're in an editorial meeting. Uh, with Zucker, and he had said, you know, good job covering uh, the Paris Climate Accord when Trump pulled out. They had covered it for about a day and a half. That was about it. Uh, and he said, now let's get back to Russia. Yeah. A- a- I yeah. mean, are you kidding? Right. Plus, there are these off-the-record comments about how it's BS and there's nothing right. there, but let's stay with it anyway. Yeah. No, it's pretty bad. It's really bad. And um, <clears throat> now, what's going to encourage them? One, their hatred of Trump. Two, their ratings are up. Right. Because you got 40, 50% of the American people, um, and maybe more than that, who watch uh, TV and the news on TV, who hate Trump. Uh, and they're going to increase the ratings of MSNBC and CNN. By the way, Fox News still leads in cable um, and uh, has for some time. It wasn't that uh, they dropped. It's that there was an increase in the other networks uh, or the other cable networks uh, of viewership. But this is a, this is a bad situation. I'll agree with the media on that. This is a bad situation, but it's mainly caused by them. I have never seen, and I've been around a long time in Washington, I have never seen the kind of uh, adversary culture at work uh, in the way it is uh, now against uh, Donald Trump and his administration. All right, let's change gears slightly, folks, and turn to foreign policy and the war against ISIS uh, and the global war against Islamist terrorism. Joining us is Michael Del Rosso. Michael is the vice president and a senior fellow of the American Strategy Group. He's the co-author of Sharia, The Threat to America. As you know, I'm proud to say I'm also a fellow of the American Strategy Group. And each week, the American Strategy Group brings us important conversations on the state of national security. To learn more, go to amstrategy.org or facebook.com slash amstrategy. Welcome to the show, Michael. Great to have you on. Great. Nice to talk to you again, Bill. How are we doing? How are we doing in the global war against Islamist terrorism? Are we getting any closer to what General Mattis said, annihilating ISIS, uh, our enemies? Well, well that's a refreshing uh, take on things. You know, the, the, the DOD has a 
350-page dictionary online, and if you put in a victory, it's not found in the definition set. But I think General Mattis will change that, uh, along with President Trump. My only, my only disappointment was that he didn't make him the Secretary of War instead yeah, of Secretary right. of Defense. Right. But it, this is, you know, there's a lot of... Um, we need to do a complete intellectual reset because what he, what the state of the government, both under Republican and Democratic administrations, has really been in one of strategic incomprehension. And uh, for instance, the travel ban. Just now, the Supreme Court ruled that the, the executive orders uh, can stand as they are. Everyone was making such a fuss over it. Not only is that perfectly within the plenary powers of the president, as delegated by the Congress, to control immigration and entry and exit. But it's just a starting point. You know, as he said uh, in, his, uh, in his campaign letter in 2015, he says he wanted a moratorium while we think this through because something's not right. And, and he's being, he was being polite uh, because, yeah. in yeah. fact, the our national security elites never actually dis, uh, determined who were at war out and what their, what their doctrines were and to actually properly define them. It's, it's been nebulous ever since. And hopefully this will be, uh, you know, this operational pause will give us a chance to actually focus on on fact-based reality and do a reset of how we did business the last 15 years. Do you take uh, encouragement, I take it you do, reading into your words from from what Mattis said, uh, but do you see actions in the real world that uh, give you confidence that uh, he means it or we mean it? Yeah, if you look at CENCOM, so Joe Votel, who was formerly uh, the commander of U.S. Special Operations Command, which is the, the, the uh, you know, this is not a, a tank war or anything. This is a, this is a soft war. And so he's an expert operator at that, and he's the commander of CENTCOM right now. And they, they're conducting operations across the theater because this is, you know, ISIS is, is, is not just limited to Iraq and Syria. It's, it's, it's taken over a number of countries and, and even entrenched itself in America as well as the fact that you have, you know, Boko Haram and other major jihadi yeah. groups pledging allegiance to Abu Bakr. And, you know, that's in the west coast of Africa. It's across over a dozen countries right now with active cells. Right, right, right. Are we closing in on them? Are we, uh, we've heard a lot lately, uh, Michael, that uh, one of the reasons for these uh, ups- upsurge in attacks in Europe and attempts here in the U.S. Uh, is because they're sputtering uh, in the main battlefield uh, because of uh, our efforts. Is that true? No. In fact, they're getting inspired. And here's the problem. So uh, back when 9-11 happened, uh, you know, bin, La- bin Laden was the perpetrator. And if you looked at his second fatwa in February 98, he came right out and said, myself and these other jihadis and other entities were a global Islamic movement at war with the non-Muslim world, and our doctrine is authoritative Islamic law, which obligates us to do this. And, and as Newt Gingrich had pointed out, and as Andy McCarthy, our, our friend, points out frequently, it's people that adhere to Sharia supremacist uh, yeah. ideologies that are the stated enemies of the Constitution that we should be identifying, and we fail to do that. And so um, talking about ISIS domestically, there was just a case last October there's a Maryland imam, Suleiman uh, Bangharsa. This is in the New York Times in October. He wrote a check for $1,300 to a Minnesota convert, Sebastian Gregerson. Now, for the last couple of years, uh, imam uh, Bangharsa has been on his Facebook page and elsewhere preaching for the Islamic State. The guy that, they, that he wrote the check to in Minnesota for 1300 bucks tried to buy hand grenades with it to implement a terrorist attack on behalf of the Islamic State. But when the FBI investigated, they said the guy wrote the check, but he's apparently broken no law because in his checkbook ledger, he said it was for zakat. Now, if anyone went and bought a copy of an Islamic law book, authoritative book published in English, in a certified translation like Reliance of the Traveler, it says it's obligatory to pay the seventh of the eighth portion of zakat to those engaged in Islamic military operations for whom no salary has been allotted in the army roster, and even if affluent, so they can buy weapons. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. Now, Andy yes. McCarthy, who's, who's no slouch in prosecuting terrorism cases, said, if you collect zakat, that's sufficient cause to open up an, a criminal investigation right. for violation of 18 U.S. Code 2339, providing material support to terrorism. And yet, there's Islamic centers across America that collects a cot, 
And the legal purpose, one of them is to support terrorism. It's an obligatory purpose. And no one does anything about it. So we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable at home. We're vulnerable by our own negligence. And, and it doesn't matter what country people come from. They can be born in the United States, as we've seen with some of these attacks. Uh, the key is what? What they believe? Uh, the, the, the trigger in the brain? Is that the key? Yeah, and it's not, it's not, a, it's not a radicalization. It's more a ideological subversion. You know, if, yeah. if you were... If you were uh, raised as a Hitler youth in Nazi Germany, you would be an enemy to the Constitution in America. And we treated them as such. You know, the, in the Bund, uh, in the United States, they were very harsh against it. And uh, uh, I believe his name was Julius Kuhn, who was the Bund leader. I mean, John, uh, you know, Amir Firo LaGuardia, uh, who knew how to handle these things, he sick to, to the, the district attorney Thomas Dewey on the guy, threw him in prison where he eventually, when he was released, he got thrown in Leavenworth, lost his citizenship, they deported him to Germany after the end, after the end of the war and got thrown in prison there. Yeah. For what he believed. Is this a function of, I, I want to get you just into, into areas that, uh, that I talk about and write about, you know, they say every anthropologist loves his own tribe. I'm pushing you there. Is this because of the weakness of our own system? That is, we don't believe so much what we used to believe. I, I, I saw a study the other day you might be interested in, which is kids entering high school who have parents from other countries identify themselves as Mexican-American, German-American, French-American, Canadian-American. When they finish high school, they drop the American part. That rather than being schools being a place where the pot melts, and we become more American, we become less American. You know, you know why, because you know what goes on in these schools. But is it, is it the weakness of our system of, uh, of, of making people Americans and decent and loyal and loving Americans, loving critics of their country? Or is it the strength, the power, the potency uh, of this uh, death, death ideology uh, of, uh, of ISIS? No, it's, it's the former, uh, because what okay. happened is, you know, generations of critical theory have been fully established in all aspects of education. And we're, we're inculcating children to not know what it means to be an American and to not know that there's absolute truth. Uh, so, for instance, I, you know, I, I was working uh, starting back in 2006 when John Guandola was still in the FBI and stood up the first internal training on the Muslim Brotherhood. And we used to do a two-week train-the-trainer course, you know, when John was still an active special agent for special agents. And I brought in our friend Ed Erler, who, who loved it. He would uh -huh. do a whole day of teaching American principles. Because if you don't know what it means to be an American, how are you supposed to know what the threat doctrines are against yeah, America? Sure, sure, sure. Let's go to some, because uh, I know you you go deep and you go wide. Let's go to some of these uh, battlefields uh, in the world. Tell me, I see nightly reports or every other night or every other week at least, um, Mosul. Are we, are we winning in Mosul? Are we pushing them out of Mosul? Well, I tell you, you know, they embedded themselves in the civilian population. And, you know, you think you'll have trouble vetting people trying to get into this country. How do you vet, uh, uh, you know, just shameless, uh, cowardly fighters that would stand behind women and children? And I, don't, I, I have all the sympathy for the, for the war fighters there. But um, I'd like to see us coordinate better with the Russians and the Syrians on this, because a lot of the, the, the making, you know, the previous administration, um, uh, through their own, I don't know, call it naivete to be uh, uh, polite, but they, they knowingly armed multiple jihadi groups across the Middle East and, and destabilized the Middle East and have uh, they made Libya a failed state. I mean, there is a matter of policy. The U.S. knowingly armed uh, al-Qaeda aligned jihadi groups on no less than three fronts. In fact, there's a, there's a guy named Belhaj. In 2011, we, 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 the administration pressured Gaddafi to spring from jail. We had actually captured him in a rendition. In March of 11, you know, John McCain and Lindsey Graham are giving the guy Belhaj a plaque, and he's, for the last couple of years, he's declared that he's the head of ISIS in Libya. And so we're making headway on these battlefields, but, you know, we have to be very careful. We, we've yet to put a proper filter to understand who it is that we're arming, when, when a lot of these guys are uh, just competing uh, Sharia supremacist jihadi groups. Yeah. So by all means, we should kill them all. And, I, and it's encouraging that, that, that General Mattis has the focus to annihilate. 
because that's it doesn't it doesn't do any good to capture them. They don't merit rehabilitation when they're cowardly conducting war behind women and children without a uniform. Right. Uh, so the death is the you know on the battlefield with a certainty is exactly what the United States should bring, and they should bring it with with certainty that uh, no one would end up screwing around with us again. I, you know, we can actually re-engage this battle and not go down the nation-building route, because that's not our job. You talked about uh, working with the Russians and the Syrians. I'm sure some people listening said, what, Russians and Syrians work with the Russians and Syrians? Well, it, at least in coordination, because we're in a common battle space. Yeah, I mean, it's it's only for safety, if for no other reason. It's as though uh, you had people uh, at a shooting range that were, uh, that were not coordinating with each other. It's It's dangerous. But we, we should also be uh, looking to completely neuter uh, uh, Iran. I mean, that's the real problem in Syria, as I see it, because that the, you know, yeah. uh, Assad okay. is really a vassal to Iran, and Iran's the, the, the emerging nuclear existential threat to America, not, not uh, Assad. So I'd like to see a very strong policy, and, and you see, uh, I won't dignify it by re-mentioning his name, but the CIA had no problem outing the, uh, uh, a very capable Central Intelligence Agency operator who's leading a charge against them. And so using all forces of, uh, of U.S. capability, diplomatic information, military, economic, we should be aggressively squeezing Iran. And, and uh, that will help cut off a lot of the trouble you see in Syria. Let's talk about the military. Does this mean, standard question, boots on the ground, a lot of military, a lot of people, a lot of combat? I have a son who's a Marine. Does it mean he goes? I know he did. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it does. I think, you know, th- this type of war, I mean, there might be a place for some armor at some point, you know, especially if you have to, you know, you're doing the equivalent of a, of a siege of a city, like uh, when we went into Fallujah. But it, again, that was door to door. And again, there's people, or, or there's entities that are not jihadis that want to fight for their own liberty in Syria and Iraq. And uh, the, the special operations forces can give them the support they need. So when you see them dropping uh, Marines into into areas, those are, for instance, Marine artillery units to give you know indirect fire yeah. support. That yeah. Normally, these uh, uh, the, the local uh, people fighting ISIS don't have. And, and uh, I think between that and advice, you're gonna, and advisors, you're going to see a lot of pressure. But I, I don't think you see a major commitment of U.S. troops. But you're going to see a major squeeze to make sure that the, that the forces are annihilated and picked through when they get and you don't around. need you don't need a major infusion of troops to to, to annihilate them no not like not like a hundred a surge of 50 or 100,000 so they're talking okay. about dropping 4,000 more here or there uh, there's there's issues in Iraq and I'm sorry in Afghanistan where the Taliban and ISIS cells exist and they should be eradicated and we can do that and sure keep eyes on the ground to understand if they pop back up again and play whack-a-mole. But uh, it is possible to beat them down and just know that they have to be destroyed. But it's not going to just be in those theaters. I mean, they, they've, they've metastasized to over a dozen countries yes. with yes. jihadi insurgencies like Boko Haram allied. And, and, and like I said, domestically, we've yet to have the, the, the conversation, the metric. Because the trouble is, you might have a Rex Tillerson that says, hey, uh, he, he lumped the Muslim Brotherhood, appropriately so, with al-Qaeda and Hamas and ISIS in his confirmation hearing. And now he's, he's being cautious because, you know, he's got a lot of state people that have drunk the Kool-Aid that they can be a, a reasonable political force instead that denounce violence. But we know from their secret captured documents that they never do. They, that, yeah. that the front of yeah. political operation is really just a front until they get to the stage you know, they, they actually have a five-phase plan. The fifth, the, the fifth stage is actually a violent takeover, like you saw happen in Egypt. Bill Buckley had uh, Michael Kinsley uh, when he was doing Firing Line. He didn't call him a millennial because we didn't have him then, but I have a millennial, Christopher Beach. And um, he listens to me, and then he uh, he counters uh, with uh, questions and comments of his own. Chris, Michael Del Rosso is here. Take advantage of it. What would you like to say or comment or ask? Yeah, great conversation so far, uh, Michael. Uh, will, in your opinion, will Europe succumb to this Sharia supremacism? I mean, we've seen this spree of attacks across Europe, and yet it doesn't seem uh, like there has been an urgent response. Um, I think they've sent some more troops, but 
not the sort of response I think you'd like to see. Will they eventually succumb to this, or can they defeat it? Let me add, let me add on to that. Uh, my, one of my other son's uh, teachers, Bernard Lewis, said that in the 21st century, uh, Europe would become Islamized or Islamist. Yeah, I, I think, you know, what you you hit it on the head before where they, they, their own nationality was denatured. I mean, this is very Gramsian. And Gramsian wrote, you know, Lenin was shocked why the revolution didn't spread throughout the, the, the downtrodden peasants of Europe. And Gramsian said it's because they have national identity and they have religion. And the progressives uh, have just spent a, a century removing that. So you have you know, uh, cultures in France and England and elsewhere that are postmodern. That there's no absolute truth, and they don't know how to defend themselves. The citizens. The two. The two things. Repeat. Uh, sorry, interrupting. The two things they didn't have are, are losing our religion and. Yeah, Gramsci uh, focused. He said that, right. the reason you can't flip the peasant class in a nation just to have a communist revolution is because they actually have a national identity, a patriotism, uh-huh. and they have they have religion. Right. And you have to get rid of those two elements in someone's psyche. And so yep. if you look okay. at the, the youth today and what the what the university and the K through twelve system produces, it does exactly that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah. and that happened across Europe much more severely than, than us. I mean here in America we the progressives had a tough tougher nut in that we were a people that believed the government existed by our consent. That wasn't the the tradition or the philosophy right. in Europe. But they they made headroads here as well. No religion, no uh, no nationality, and there's another thing they seem to be lacking, and that's children. That too, yes. Yeah, I mean that. But matters. not, but not the, the hijra, the uh, you know the that that right. is the actual strategy of yeah. of, of uh, the global Islamic movement. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I'm looking for a number. You may know who who has it, but average uh, French family of uh, you know that's been French and. Uh, ethnically for hundreds of years, what what their uh, reproduction rate is compared to the Islamists who have moved into France. Uh, I'll bet it's like I, three, I don't think they're three or four to one. No, Italy isn't. And, yeah, and no, I that's think right. uh, France is about close to that. Chris, anything else you want? No, that was great. That answered my question. Okay, Michael, thank you very much. This was a, a great uh, great debut, and we appreciate it, and we'd love to call on you again. Thank you, Michael Del Rosso. Anytime. Have a great Thank day. You. And, and uh, hi to my mom, Mickey Del Rosso. Hey, that makes a big listener. Hi, Mom. How are you, Mom? Thank she's you very great, much. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Welcome back, folks. David French is our guest. He's an attorney and a senior writer for National Review, as well as a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. Yeah, it gets better and better. An attorney, oh, it's okay. Senior writer, a little better. Senior fellow at the National Review Institute, and best of all, former major in the United States Army, and he was deployed in Iraq. And we thank you for your service to our country, David. Thank you very much. Oh, my privilege. Let's talk about this uh, Supreme Court. Uh, do I call it a decision or action? Uh, was, yeah, it's uh, a Supreme Court ruling, certainly. It's a, ru- it's a ruling. Okay, it is a ruling. was uh, really quite uh, remarkable, quite, uh, quite stunning. Um, you think it is a positive, a, a strong positive for the president and the country. Oh, I think it's an unambiguously strong positive for the president. I mean, let's let's review what happened here. I mean, first, the Supreme Court reinstated the vast majority of the, and we'll use the term travel ban, but it's really a temporary pause in in uh, immigration from select countries and a temporary pause in refugee admission. But it reinstated the vast, vast bulk of the president's executive order. Um, it, it allowed the internal review processes to go forward. It reimposed a travel pause from six jihadist countries. It uh, reinstated the refugee admissions pause. It reinstated the refugee caps with only a very, very limited exception. And that very limited exception was uh, for people who had a bona fide relationship existing in the United States. In other words, like an admitted student to a university or a family member, a mother-in-law or a brother or a sister of somebody who's already here in the United States. And so in essence, I mean, that is the Trump executive order is imposed now. Now, the other thing that was incredibly significant, this wasn't by a 5-4 decision. All nine justices agreed that at the very least, the vast majority of the executive order should be imposed. And the only disagreement was three who thought the whole thing should be imposed. The whole thing should be, uh, 
including a restriction on people who have the bona fide relationship in the U.S. So it was a very strong victory for the president. Yeah, I, I remember. I, I wasn't looking at it so much as a as a legal document, though. Of course, legal finding, an opinion, a ruling by the court, it is. But I just remember at the time of the announcement uh, by the president, the reaction. Uh, of people who were in opposition is, is too mild a term. Chuck Schumer wept, as you remember. Uh, New York Times editorial board said Donald Trump's ban is cowardly and dangerous. On and on it went that, that, that no decent and humane person could ever do such a thing. Um, and that this, the courts, you know, would, would strike it down. Then a little later on, if I remember correctly, it didn't take very long. There was the quote resistance, the demonstrations. And then the media was saying, well, you know, Trump has tried to put this ban into effect, but the resistance against him is strong. There are the people in the streets and the airports, but there are the courts uh, as well. Uh, my memory serves me right, doesn't it? I mean, this is what, what was going on. Yes, absolutely. I think what was happening is it's, it's as if the Democratic Party was preparing to resist a Muslim ban. And then when it didn't actually happen. And what happened was this really very limited travel pause. Uh, they reacted as if it was the Muslim ban. I mean, they, re they reacted with the same ferocity that they would as if, it was an, if this was an actual real life um, ban on all Muslim entry. And it wasn't remotely. It was actually a, a very, very modest immigration restriction. And, and yet the, the reaction now, of course, the Trump administration had some problems in implementation. It shouldn't have applied it to people who are in transit and green card holders. And that sure, caused sure, some, sure. some of this chaos at airports. But the reaction was so far out of proportion to the document itself. Yeah, yeah. So no, nine people on the court. I, I, I got to ask this question. Um, I went to law school, but I, you know. What was it, what it, I went to law school, but didn't make any impact on me. What's that old joke? <laughs> uh, I saw the I saw the movie, but I can't remember it. Um, I still react like like a layman. How can you have two uh, federal courts uh, come out one way uh, unanimously? I guess or close to it, and then the Supreme Court come out the exact opposite way. How is that? Do people just get to be more grown up when they go to the Supreme Court? They take it more seriously. Is this ideology because there are liberals on the Supreme Court, a bunch of little questions at once. Right. I mean, you know, because keep in mind, Ruth Bader, this is a per curiam decision, uh, a decision of the court, which means that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was on, on board with this decision. Sonia Sotomayor right. was on board with this Supreme Court decision, um, and which is sharply at odds with the Fourth Circuit and with the Ninth Circuit. And, and uh, number one, I think there are perhaps even more radical jurists in the lower courts that are in the Supreme Court. But number two, I'm reminded of that old phrase, uh, where you stand is based on where you sit. Yeah. And the Supreme Court's job is to think into the future as well in, in the consequences and implications of its rulings. I mean, it's interpreting the law, it's, it's interpreting the Constitution, and it's interpreting the Constitution with an eye towards the overall structure of the, the entire constitutional project. <laughs> and in this right. circumstance, I can't help but think that even some of these liberal justices looked and said, these lower court decisions so thoroughly usurped the power of the executive and the power of Congress yeah. that this would be have extraordinarily negative consequences, not just for a Trump administration, which I guarantee you multiple members of that court don't have any regard for, but for every administration going forward, because this was yeah. an, a tremendous judicial usurpation of power in these lower courts. And so I was pleased, but not entirely surprised, uh, that the Chief Justice was able to get the kind of consensus that he did here. Yeah, yeah, I was too. Does that mean, excuse me, but I, I, the course of study I did take seriously was my philosophy degree. So this is kind of one of those odd philosopher questions. If, if where you stand depends upon where you sit, would some of those justices who are in the lower courts who found vociferously against Trump were on the Supreme Court, they would have come out a different way because of where they were sitting? Yeah, I think it's entirely yeah, okay. possible. Okay. Okay. I, I really okay. do. I mean, it's, you know, we can't know for certain. Yeah, we can't know for possible. sure. Because these are liberals. These are bona fide liberals. There's no question about Sotomayor and Kagan and, and Breyer and Ginsburg, right? These are liberals. Oh, absolutely. I mean, okay. not yeah. only are, are they liberals, but Ruth Bader Ginsburg is an iconic progressive. I mean, she right. is 
you know, the notorious RBG is what legal progressives call her. They 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 revere right. her. Uh, well, then let's drop her seat. Let's drop her down to a circuit court. If she were there, would she have signed on unanimously? She would have been with the with the, where the lower courts were, wouldn't she? I, I'm, you know, uh, who I knows? Think, okay, I, I okay. Think so. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just I'm just guessing. When this came out, I, I read and I watched TV and saw a lot of the liberals saying, "No, there's no question. This is a victory for Trump." It seemed almost unanimous, except in the opinion of someone whose uh, views I esteem. I imagine you do too, and that's Andy McCarthy. Uh, and our friend Andy said, not so fast. Um, the positive part of the of the court's order, which narrows the stay, is the part you don't see. But he said, uh, we can't celebrate because um, there are many problems with it. Uh, let me cite some of the problems that he says. First of all, these special relationships that we were talking about, what you call the bona fide relationships, he seems to think there are, quote, a lot of them, or at least potentially a lot of them, or that this is rife with mischief, that all sorts of people are going to claim a special relationship. First thing I heard from a friend of mine coming from the academy, as I do, he said, uh, university is going to admit all these people, all the refugees. <laughs> you know, not, not, not such a stretch for universities to admit anybody who's got a Pell Grant. But, uh, but I mean, right. uh, th- this is rife with mischief. Uh, fair point? What would you say well, to it? I, you know, look, anything that Andy writes, I take very, very seriously. Um, he's, he's brilliant. He knows the law backwards and forwards. The one thing that I, I, there's a couple of things I'd say. Number one, the court itself, I think, foresaw the, the potential problems. And so tried to lay out the parameters and said, look, you, if you're a university, you can't admit someone into this country just for the purpose of evading the executive order. And when we talk about relationships, we're not talking, we're talking about people like a mother-in-law or a close family relation. So it's not as if you can have sort of a, uh, a, a, a Libyan in the United States who says, well, I need my fourth cousin in the, in the country. Uh, and so they tried to lay some, some uh, order down in that way. And, and look, I think is, could, could the court have, say, fashioned together a 5-4 majority in favor of a very decisive rebuke of the lower courts? Um, Maybe, maybe it could have. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Um, but what they did do, what the Chief Justice was able to do, was cobble together all nine judges for a decision that was notable for something that I think um, is easy to overlook. It did not at all deal with Trump campaign statements. Because recall, in, at least yeah. in, in lower courts, right. that, that had been That's a very right. big part of the decision. And what did, what did the court do? Instead, it looked at the language of the statutes, and it examined the power of the presidency. And it noted very clearly that when the president is dealing with these people from, from nations, uh, jihadist-infested uh, nations, and that have no connection to the United States, that the power of the president was at its apex. So the decision actually went back to first principles, and it, it unrung the bell in a way. Uh, so that yeah. these these lower court decisions no longer have the force that they used to have, and could it have been? I mean, in theory, could you cobble together their five four for something even more decisive? Maybe. Um, I don't know where okay. Justice Kennedy would come down, but when you get all nine and you get the vast majority of the travel ban imposed, uh, I call that a, a a very strong win. McCarthy connects that point to another point. Like maybe you've just spoken to it. That is, this will, because of the exceptions, the bona fide relationship business, this will encourage forum shopping. That is uh, for people to go back to these lower courts and look for that same decision. Well, yeah, that's a possibility. However, there's another thing that's working right here against that, uh, and that is the clock. Because if the administration is on its game, and if the if the uh, Department of Homeland Security is on its game, what they're going to do now is they're going to use the pause that they have to then formulate and implement a more permanent policy. And the instant that that more permanent policy is implemented, it supersedes these okay. executive orders. And so okay. once that more yeah. permanent policy is implemented, that's going to be the subject. That will be the issue, not this court ruling. And I, th- I hope I hope and expect that they're doing that. All right. And that takes me to my last two questions, uh, David French. 
one is this whole issue of uh, how long the order was put in effect for. Well, this when the court examines it, will it be what are the odds that they'll declare it a moot question because the 90 days will have run out, and that was the original time period? That is a very good question, and I, I'll be honest with you. As I look at this, and I, you look at the timetable, and you look at the issues remaining, I'm not sure what kind of case and controversy is going to be truly left in October, by the time the case, this court, the court hears this decision. Yeah. Honestly, if I was one of the administration's lawyers, I would be saying, here's Mr. President, use the time that the court has given you, because they've given you back your travel pause, to create and formulate your new policy, announce the new policy, and moot the case. Because you, you have a positive court ruling, you have the policy you want, these negative lower court decisions have been seriously compromised by the Supreme Court ruling, announce a new policy, fight over a new policy, moot out this case. And, and okay. I, I would think that would be a prudent, a prudent strategy. All right. And my last question, we've both been uh, very respectful of Andy. We both think the world of him, and we both said he's wrong on all three counts. So <laughs> we're going to send this to him. We'll give him a chance for rebuttal and response. But but one thing and it will that he, be, and it will be blistering. Yeah, yeah, you bet. You bet. You bet. Both of us. Yeah, I'm going to blame you mostly. But but uh, the one thing that Andy has persuaded me of is quite apart from the constitutionality of this, the wisdom of this, and whether you approach it this way is is an open question. And I'm persuaded by Andy that the real question isn't what country people come from and whether it's war-torn or violence-torn or terror-prone. The real question is whether the people you're letting in are Sharia supremacists. And that gets to the question of extreme vetting and how good our vetting system is. Isn't that where the focus should be? I think he believes, and I guess I do too to some extent, that there's so much reluctance to raise the whole question of a problem with Islam or part of Islam that people are avoiding the heart of the matter, which is do you believe, which is, you know, it seems to me a perfectly reasonable question, that uh, that the Koran supersedes the Constitution, that Sharia supremacism is the heart of your beliefs and not uh, not the teachings of the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. I, you know, that on that point, I'm in absolute agreement with Andy. I mean, I okay. think I have yeah. maybe a little bit more sympathy towards these country-specific uh -huh. rulings or these orders because the countries are so problematic. I mean, you, you know, when you're talking about Iran, you're talking about a a country that has been, in essence, in a state of war with the United States since 1979. I mean, Libya is torn apart by jihadist militias. Yemen, Yemen is barely a functioning state. I mean, so I can I can understand why you would single out specific countries, but I think the problem is so much deeper uh, yeah. than oh, look, we have some failing states or some jihadist states. It is there is a, an ideology that exists that is incompatible it's utterly incompatible with right. american an american constitutional republic and how do we screen to keep those people out and and i don't think the trump administration has exhibited the will to do that uh certainly no democrat has exhibited the will to do that yeah and until we can face that head on we're just going to keep kicking this can down the road and admitting more people into this country who if they even if they're not uh, even if they're not going to be recruited to be jihadists, will be sympathetic to jihadism, and, yeah, and sure. you know the communities they create will be fertile ground for recruitment. I have a lot of regard for General now Secretary Kelly. I imagine you do too. Uh, I remember when the appointment of Mattis, uh, I was talking to Senator Cotton, and I said I really like Mattis to you. He said, "Oh, I, 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 Cotton is great, but I hope they appoint Kelly too." Um, but when Kelly talks about extreme vetting. Are we not to take that seriously? You said the Trump administration maybe doesn't isn't stepped up to this either. We we could do better on the vetting, couldn't we? Are we doing any better? Is there such a thing as extreme vetting? Is it going on? You know, you know, we I don't think we anybody really knows what that yeah. term means yet. Okay. And okay. and here's the problem: when you're talking about people from many of these countries, what you and I would call extreme vetting isn't even possible. Um, when I lived, yeah. when I when yeah. I served in Iraq, you, and you have say a random citizen from Diyala province, there's just no background information on them. Right. Right. It's it's not like you're many people from uh, these countries. It's not like they have the kinds of footprints that Americans have, yeah. uh, where 
you know, there, there's a documented past. Um, extreme betting often just right. flat out isn't possible. And, and that's something that people need to be aware of. They think of it as our, our security services, our, you know, our intelligence community can somehow find out what it needs to find out about everybody. It can't. It can't possibly do that. And, and that's why we have to be. And I'm very restrictionist. My view is we should be imposing ideological tests and if Good. somebody comes from a particularly problematic jihadist region, they should be able to only way they get into the country is they prove demonstrated service and commitment to the United States of America, wow. such as interpreters, wow. such as military allies. Wow. So I'm wow. pretty. But of course, I've seen I've seen terror up close in Iraq yep. and yep. and it's deeply uh, sobering. And Understood. I think anyone who's seen it up close comes away. Uh, very sobered by its reality. So un- under your standard, uh, where you make the cut, that forlorn refugee family doesn't make it. Well, and my, under my standard, my, but that's only part of the picture. I don't think that uh, we, we've gotten to a point where we sometimes define compassion as meaning you're not compassionate unless you want that yeah. forlorn refugee yeah. family in the U.S. No, I know. My view I know. is I want that forlorn refugee family to be safe in their own country. Yeah. And and, you know, to that end, I think one of the great tragedies of the last administration is how they allowed not just the Syrian civil war to spiral out of control, sure. but the refugee problem to spiral out of control. Oh, I agree. And I, agree. Uh, I think that, you know, we're making progress now in northern Syria. And as we make that progress in northern Syria, there may actually be a place where people can live and work and without having to flee to Europe or without having to flee to the United States. And that's the goal. That's what we need to be working towards, not working towards a situation that says, well, just as many people as we can possibly admit to the U.S., bring them here. Why not make people safe in their own homes? Yeah. No, I, well, I agree with you, but these are, this falls under the category I'm making a list of things which become harder to say in contemporary discourse. <laughs> you know, like, True. I'm not sure we should ensure everybody of the pre-existing condition, you know? I mean, I think a lot, a lot of people actually believe that, but I don't know anybody publicly who's going to say it, at least anybody who serves. Uh, and this is of, of, the, of the same sort. No, I, I mean, I think they're talking about bringing people into the United States, and we have to have a standard for it. And there's a reason there are so many refugees, and that is if we hadn't messed this thing up or played such a role in messing this thing up in other countries. I think you're absolutely right. And you, uh, unlike I, have seen this. I've uh, seen this up close. So it was a great discussion. I always, like Bill Buckley did, um, he had Michael Kinsley handy, uh, handy. I try to keep a millennial handy, you know, some 50 <laughs> years difference. Uh, and uh, Chris Beach is around. I think he's still around. Chris, are you there? Yes, I am. Do you have a question or comment uh, you'd like to throw to David? I think this has been a, a great discussion. Uh, David, where does the president go from here? He's vindicated on this, but he can't rest on his laurels. What is the next steps politically? He sees, yeah, comes up a great, with a new policy, right? Right, David, for what you were saying right, before, for one thing. Right. And, a, a sounder one, a and, better one. Excuse me, guys. Yeah, I think that, that that's, boy, that's a $64,000 question. I think uh, one of them is, you know, he's going to make these refugee ca- uh, caps that he's put in place um, semi-permanent, or at least, you know, this, this 50,000 number will be the one going forward is likely. Uh, which is a number that's a little lower than the average in the Obama administration, a little higher than the average in the Bush administration. But then the other thing is uh, he's going to have to articulate a standard uh, that applies to immigration, not just from jihadist countries, but immigration from countries that may even be quasi-allies of ours, like Saudi Arabia, but but have also been uh, sources of terror. And and that's going to be a lot more difficult. I would like to see articulation of tough standards um, and and reallocation of resources to adequately examine uh, the ideas and ideology of entrance to the U.S. I'm not so sure that we'll see it. So, for example, if we have an, someone who's seeking entry into the U.S. and they are uh, seeking a visa and their Facebook has pictures paying homage to Hamas, you know, the founders of Hamas, that person doesn't need to be in the United States of America. Um, or, you know, if you have social media trails indicating sympathy for jihadists, that person doesn't need to be in the United States of America. Um, and articulating those kinds of standards, I think, would be 
extremely valuable. I just am not sure that we're going to have the national political will yet to do that. And so that that's my concern. Yeah, that's great. Chris, that answer your question. <laughs> well, I tell people, but despite the bane um, of, of millennials, and I'm kidding here, I just say this to provoke Chris, <laughs> but one good, one good thing is they, they have fingerprints everywhere, you know? I mean, there's not going to be any millennial without a history. All we need to do is go to their iPhones, you know, and their desktops, laptops. Um, they, they leave a trail wherever, <laughs> wherever they go. <laughs> We do make it pretty easy. Yeah, everybody's got a documentable history. David French is terrific, just terrific. Thank you very much. And we will send this to Andy uh, and say give him a chance to respond. But thank you so much. Hold on to your hat. You betcha. <laughs> no, I understand. No, we're going to give him your address, not ours. Okay. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, folks, that's a show. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks particularly to David French and Michael Del Rosso, our guests. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Uh, A lot to think about, a lot to chew over. Thank you so much for listening. Tell your friends and tell them to subscribe. It's free. This is Bill Bennett. Thanks a lot.